Crossover Appeal is a show that will sometimes have spoilers, but the hosts promise not to be jerks about it. Also, from time to time, Walt and Annie may get small details about the things they discuss incorrect, and they would like you to know that every time it happens, it is done on purpose to spite you specifically. Enjoy the show! Everybody and welcome to Crossover Appeal. I'm Walt McGough. And I'm Annie Cardi. Hi Annie. Hey Walt. Annie, what do we do on Crossover Appeal? On Crossover Appeal, we take a book or a movie or a TV show or other form of narrative storytelling and then cross it over with another piece of narrative storytelling. Yeah, and it's super duper fun. Yeah, we talk about themes and characters and who would kiss. Yeah. Annie, how does Bodo the dog feel about what we do on Crossover Bodo Appeal? Bodo is somehow not a fan. He yeah. keeps walking around whining because we're not paying attention to him. But only waiting until we press play, like record. Oh, exactly. His, his timing is impeccable. Yeah. He's born to be a star. He is. He's a diva. <laughs> oh, the diva. Well, uh, Annie, what are we crossing over tonight? Bodo be darned. Uh, we are crossing over Pushing Daisies and Angels in America. Ooh, the theater. Yeah, and the television. The theater. America's theater. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, that, <laughs> yep. that checks out. It's all playwrights anyway. Oh, totally. So, yeah, that totally makes sense. Oh, Bodo, so upset. That's true. Um, so, Annie, uh, why don't you get us rolling and talk a little bit about Pushing Daisies. Uh, Pushing Daisies is a mystery fantasy show about a man who bakes pies and can bring things back from the dead with one touch. Oh, that old chestnut. Yeah, right? Um, the show was created by Brian Fuller and ran for two seasons um, from 2007 to 2009. Definitely not as long as it should have gone. Mm-hmm. Um so, you know, not not just a one-season wonder, but certainly far less than I think it should have gotten. Two-season twunder. Bodo didn't like that. No. Bodo's <laughs> <laughs> like, you can do better than that. Uh, well, why do you feel like it should have run longer? Tell uh, us about how magical well, it is. It's, so it's a wonderful, magical, whimsical show that deals with know real dark issues as well um Mm -hmm. the show follows ned a pie baker who learned as a child that he had a special gift the ability to bring things back to life Uh, which sounds great but the gift has some rules one touch means life another touch brings back death and if you bring something back to life for more than a minute something else has to die there's got to be balance in the universe absolutely um ned learns this when his mother suddenly dies of an aneurysm he brings her back to life but after a minute his family's neighbor and the father of his best friend slash true love charlotte chuck charles um dies in her place so you know so he brings his mom back right, but, a minute but goes then, by and then this guy just like drops dead yeah exactly door. it's like a proximity thing oh no um but then that night ned's mom kiss, kisses him goodnight and dies again oh, because no. of the second touch rule yeah that's a bad day for yeah Ned. that's a bad day for neighbors oh man yeah so both Ned and Chuck have lost their parents in one day. Not so much fun. Um, Ned is sent off to boarding school and grows up solitary and just thinking like he... He has to stay separate from people. Yeah, and at boarding school, he learns how to learns what his powers rules are, right? Yeah, he kind of was able to test it out with like you know, frog in the science class, and yeah, and like uh, flies and stuff. Yeah, and and rotten fruit. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So he he goes on to be a pie baker and open up his own pie shop called yeah. the Pie Hole. Can't kill a pie. No, you can. You can use old strawberries to make them new strawberries again. <gasps> Magic pies. Magic pies. Mm. Um, but one day, private investigator Emerson Codd learns about Ned's abilities and ropes him into his detective work. Because it's way easier to solve crimes when you can ask the victim who killed them. <laughs> Take that, Law and Order like, SVU. Much like Lindsay Lohan, they know who killed them. Yes. <laughs> that is 100% accurate. Yeah. I'm, I'm pretty sure that's what that that's, movie was that, about. Yep. I, I'm pretty sure that that movie was fan fiction for Pushing Daisies. <laughs> it was a spinoff. Lindsay Lohan was like, I love Pushing Daisies, but they won't let me on it, so I'm going to write my own version. Exactly. In which yeah. I know who killed me. <laughs> and it's going to be on the Flophouse, and it's going to be great. Oh, man. Mm. Shout out to the Flophouse. Hey. Um, so one crime that Merson Cod wants to solve is... The death of Charlotte Chuck Charles. I know, I know it's, that name. It's, yeah, it's Ned's neighbor slash true love who oh. lost her dad because of Ned's secret powers. Wow, that family has it rough. Yeah, major bad luck. Mm. Um, so Chuck decided, you know, she grew up with her um, agoraphobic aunts who were very loving but didn't leave the house. Um, so Chuck decides one day that she she's done all his reading about the world, but she's never seen it. So she's going to go see the world. Unfortunately, she gets on a cruise and is murdered. Oh, no. I know. That's in episode one. It's like right away. No spoilers. They cut right to the chase. They cut right to the chase. So Ned uh, is on the case and brings her back to life. Emerson thinking, oh, he's just going to, like usual, ask who killed her Mm -hmm. um, and then touch her again. And she's dead forever. Um, But Ned finds out he can't really do that because Chuck's adorable. And he still kind of loves her. So he doesn't want to send her back to dead. No, he doesn't want to send her back to dead. So he... Keeps, gets, her alive. keeps her alive um and now chuck is like part of the team and uh the show follows ned emerson chuck and pie shop waitress olive snook as they solve crimes man that's a pretty high concept for yeah a show. it's a real high concept so they're solving <laughs> crimes hiding chuck's dead identity and finding out more about ned and chuck's own mysterious family past and unlike Lindsay lohan chuck does not know who killed her. No, that's what they have to find out in the first episode. Yeah, yeah, it's a big mystery. Mm-hmm. It's probably well, good it's, to it's not a be one like episode Lindsay Lohan mystery. as much as possible. Yeah, like nine tenths of not Lindsay Lohan is yeah. probably a good way to be. It's a good thing to shoot for. Yeah, she's a redhead though, so that yeah, last tenth yeah, oh, is something yeah, totally. to aspire to. And you know, she was in Mean Girls. That's oh, an awesome yeah, movie. That's she true. was in Parent Trap. Like. There's yeah. a lot of things that are, are good on the old Lindsay Lohan resume. Yeah. There's a worthwhile tent in there. Yeah. Yeah, totally. <laughs> um, so, yeah. How about those characters? So, characters, we have Ned, played adorably by Lee Pace. Lee Star Pace. of The Hobbit. Star of the best five minutes of The Hobbit <laughs> ever. I, so, The Hobbit's not a great series of movies. Nope. Um and, you know, but, like, other people are doing a good job. Like, all the Hobbit, or all the dwarves are really good. Yeah. Um, Everybody feels like they're in the same yeah, movie. Yeah, they, they're in the same universe. But I think Lee Pace thought, oh, I'm an elf. I need to make as many dramatic gestures as possible. Yes, I must act as I have no bones, only <laughs> yeah. cartilage. And, like... And he's, like, a fan. So he's, like, a fancy boy shark. Yes. Like... <laughs> <laughs> Fancy Boy Shark is my new band name, everybody. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I listen it. to them. 
Or would it be Fancy Boy Shark or Fancy Boy and the Sharks? No, Fancy Boy Shark. Okay, yeah. We are Fancy Boy Shark. <laughs> uh, but yeah, go watch the the five but, minutes of Lee Pace in The Hobbit. Yeah, and then watch Pushing Daisies because Lee Pace is actually an excellent right. actor. He's quite it's wonderful. more just like he didn't quite understand what he was supposed to be doing mm-hmm. in The Hobbit movies. Yeah. Um, but in Pushing Daisies, he's really adorable and sensitive and funny and really gets the the dialogue very well. Nice. Um, there's Chuck, played adorably by Anna Friel. Um, Emerson Codd, played gruffly but adorably by um, Shy McBride. Olive Snook, played adorably by Kristen Chenoweth. In case you can't tell, this cast is adorable. Yeah, I was going to say, Kristen Chenoweth's default setting is adorable. Oh, totally. And every so often she gets a chance to sing, which is great. Yes. Um, the show also has a narrator, um, which is Tim Dale, who also narrated the Harry Potter books. And starred in the original Pete's Dragon, for all of you who, like me, watched that over and over as a kid. Hey. Did he star? He was the villain, right? Technical star. (laughs) (laughs) He was the name. He was the big name that was was drawing the kids. Yeah. All the kids came to see Jim Dale. Not really the dragon. Exactly. (laughs) Um, We also have Chuck's agoraphobic aunts, Vivian and Lily Charles. Um... Chuck lived with them after her dad died. They used to be performing mermaids in like a mermaid show. Aww. Um, and I know at least Vivian, she was in the movie version of um, Little Shop of Horrors. Oh, cool. So yeah, like another kind of musical theater yeah. person. Um, there is the coroner who is suspicious of um, Emerson and Ned and Chuck, but who plays a real great deadpan yep. whenever they have to go into the, the coroner's office. Mm-hmm. Um, and then lots of other characters who show up in the murder of the week style mystery show yeah. format. Um, like Gina Torres shows up as Emerson Codd's ex. Oh, yeah. So it really is like a murder of a week theme. Yeah, right? it definitely is. And that has like an overarching theme about, um, again, like Ned's background and Chuck's background. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, mostly it's formatted murder of the week style. Um, some themes of the show include uh, personal connection. Uh, so Ned was kind of devastated, obviously, by the loss of his mother and subsequently being sent off to boarding school by his emotionally distant father. And so he shunned most personal connections until Chuck came back to into his life. And physical connections, too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, like, he's a very physically guarded person. Yeah. And, um, you, have, you know, you know, throughout the show, Ned learns to be more open to the people around him and look for more intimacy and connection. Um, so even though he can't physically touch Chuck he is opening up um, both to her and to other people and I feel like it's really like that's where Lee Pace's performance really shines through especially is like the way that he carries himself around other people especially with Chuck like he yeah he just portrays a lot of like reticence but wanting to reach out but not really being able to or knowing how to yeah exactly Um, and another theme is dealing with the past Um, so much as Ned would like to believe it the past does not stay dead sometimes literally even if you touch it yeah even if you touch it you can't put that death back in a box oh no the death box the coffin I think they call this oh yeah (laughs) those old chestnuts (laughs) yep Um, and tied with that, responsibility for others. Um, so what responsibility does Ned have for keeping de- people dead or alive? Um, when he lets something live, he knows that something else has to die. So is he responsible for whatever happens based on that choice? Are he and Emerson using dead people for their own personal gain? 
uh, the show doesn't give a lot of clear moral answers, which is nice, um, but focuses on how we all do have a responsibility for our choices and responsibility to those around us to do good and take care of each other and, again, kind of form your own community. Yeah, I think it does a nice job of, like, <laughs> dropping those questions in, but, like, leaving them, I mean, for a good TV series, like, to kind of yeah. percolate and pop up when they were useful or when they serve well for the arts. Oh, definitely. Mm-hmm. Um So yeah, other things that I like and I think other people will like. Um, The cast is adorable, in Mm -hmm. case you hadn't noticed that. Um, And they have a lot of fun chemistry. Um, Like, I think they they also work so well together and are so sharp and funny and... Um, they get the dialogue really well. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, like the writing is just so quirky and whimsical and funny and like goes for those dark moments too, but um, has this like magical fantasy quality about it. Yeah. And it's super fast paced too. <laughs> yeah. Like it really moves through plots. Oh, totally. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, and like super fast paced in terms of dialogue too. Like yeah. I know that people talk about like Gilmore Girls in terms of fast dialogue, but I mm-hmm. think that Pushing Daisies has that kind of patter sense to it. Yeah, absolutely. And the narration helps move a lot of things. Too. Oh, totally. Um, and yeah, you can cover a lot of background and asides with the, the wonderful Jim Dale. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Murder of the Week styling is fun, and it keeps you guessing. Like, I tend to enjoy that approach because it's it's a fun way to do kind of just episode by episode. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a good way for me to rewatch things because it's not like shows that are less episodic where I'm like, oh, which part is this? Which season? Where is this? I'm like, hey, I'm going to watch the episode where they go to the circus or the episode where they go to the car factory. like Circus folk. Oh, circus folk with your (laughs) tiny hands and your holidays. They're very practicing circus folk. Yes, they are high practicing circus folk. Mm -hmm. Um, Also, the production design on the show is fantastic. Like, it's so heightened and bright, and it's a colorful, trippy world um, that feels like it's intensely stylized. And I think probably is one of the things that unfortunately led to it not being renewed. Um, I think this was going on at the time of the writer's strike as well, so it had a lot of issues. But, um, I mean, it's an expensive show to put on because everything has to look a very particular way you can't just be like we're going to a coffee shop we can film it here it's like you have to invent a co- a very stylized coffee shop yeah even the the pie hole right their pie yeah. shop is like a super like candy coated yeah wonderland oh yeah it looks like you're like i am going into a fantasy world version of a pie shop yeah um and because it is also very episodic each episode has to have at least one very stylized new set that you're probably not going to use again yeah it's uh, um, it looks really striking though. Like I remember the first time seeing it when you were watching it. Yeah. it like it's a show that pops. Yeah, like you and like it's just so beautifully done. So mm-hmm. yeah, I think it it had a lot of issues going for it that led to its early demise. But it's super well constructed. Yeah, fondly remembered. Indeed. Um. So other things being fondly remembered. Um, yeah, and Angels, still very present. Yeah, too. Angels in America. Yeah. So let's talk about Angels in America. Um. The full title of Angels in America is Angels in America: A Gay Fantasia on National Themes. It is a 1990 play by Tony Kushner. Um. It was first developed in San Francisco at the Mark Taper Forum. Um. And then in 1993, it had uh its major Broadway production. Um. After which it won the Pulitzer Prize for Drama, the Tony for Best Play, the Drama Desk Award for Outstanding. It won everything. And I feel like, like if you asked me when Angels in America came out, I mean, I was a kid, so 
I was very focused on Beauty and the Beast at that time. Of course. But I think I would have said more like later 90s. Mm-hmm. When you say 1990, I'm like, wow, that's so early. No what like yeah, no it wonder is. it was so innovative. Yeah, because it was it was definitely a period piece um in that it was set in the 1980s, but it was written very close to the time yeah. that it depicts. Like it's not like he was looking back 10 years prior or anything. Um it is prior. generally regarded hmm? prior prior everybody's gonna get that joke yeah in, in like two seconds minutes um so uh angels in america is generally regarded as one of the real seminal works of modern theater uh especially in the late 20th and early 21st century um as i'll mention in the recommendations later in the episode it's hard to find a modern play that doesn't owe some kind of debt to angels in america it really shifted a lot of paradigms in how people thought about theater and the way that theater of the 80s and 90s was in conversation with uh, the politics of the time. Um, It is actually two plays um, which can be performed independently, uh, but they are almost always staged together either in a repertory setting or they'll stage the part one and then stage part two immediately after. I feel like it would be real weird to be like, we're just doing part one of Angels in America this season. Yeah, especially... And not doing part two at all. Yeah, because it is like one of the only theatrical cliffhangers like legitimate cliffhangers that I've ever encountered the end of part one it's this amazing moment that like all you want to do when it ends is see part two Um, part one is called Millennium Approaches part two is called Perestroika and hey guess what it is set in the mid 80s when the millennium was approaching and also Perestroika was about to happen Um, so it is very grounded in the time period in which it is set Um, it is also set most importantly, um, in the middle of the AIDS crisis of the 1980s, uh, specifically in October of 1985 and then December of 1985. Um, It is a play that is incredibly centered on the American gay experience at that time. Uh, It had a lot of controversy surrounding it when it first premiered because of some very frank portrayals of gay sex and of gay relationships and of gay characters and it really um uh knocked a lot of people's monocles off uh mm-hmm. with uh, it was those a, pearls yeah which was a very it was a very shocking play for its time um and that in its own way um set a lot of trends yeah. for how theater and works. i mean again thinking about media that i remember regarding gay people at like when i when i was a kid like i think of like philadelphia and ellen mm-hmm. Yeah. And that was all in the mid to late 90s. Yeah, exactly. Like this was very much on the forefront of the movement of like media starting to talk about things mm. in a very upfront way, um, especially the AIDS crisis. I think it, yeah. pushed it, it pushed things into people's consciousness in a way that really um, wasn't able to be ignored anymore. Um, and Angels in America was a really artistic, wonderful um, example of that. Um, it is a very metaphorical and complex play, but also very funny and trenchant and super fast paced. Um, it's a blast to watch. Um, a good, well done production of this play is just a joy uh, for the entire audience. I feel like I wouldn't exactly want to see a really bad production oh God, of Angels yeah. in America. Oh. Like, I'd be okay seeing a bad production of, like, Guys and Dolls. Yeah. But... If only because there's a lot of words in Angels in America. Yeah. Like, I feel... And it, most productions are bad because they're too slow. And if this play is too slow, boy, that would be a slog. Oh, yeah. Oof. Um, basic synopsis. Uh, the play is set in New York and focuses on two central characters, uh, Louis Ironson, who's a gay Jewish lawyer. And his partner, Pryor Walter, uh, that is his name. There's a reason for it. Uh, 
Fryer has discovered that he has AIDS. Um, Lewis is unable to cope with this and the idea of having to take care of Pryor, and mm-hmm. so he moves out. Um, this was a character choice that caused, and I think still causes, a lot of discussion and controversy in, within the gay community. Um, the idea of a gay man leaving his lover because he had AIDS is something that... Uh, was not unheard of, but a lot of people took issue with um, the idea that Lewis does it in the play um, mm-hmm. as a reflection of the gay experience because oh, so yeah. much of the AIDS crisis was about that community coming together and supporting. Yeah, and I think a lot of the um, the stereotype surrounding gay culture at the time is so negative and, you know, portrayed gay men is like somehow more promiscuous than yeah, other men. And... Yeah, but it's like, no, that I'm sure if you were dealing with that as a couple, like, Obviously, it's very, like, harmful to leave someone in their time of need in that way. But also, like, that must be really overwhelming if yeah. you're, you found out that your partner has AIDS. Yeah, and Lewis is very much a character who has a self-preservation instinct, both, like, physically and intellectually. He's a very mm. sort of self-protecting character. Um, so, yeah, it's a play that is not um, trying to portray all of its gay characters as angels or yeah. as a beyond reproach uh, and Lewis they are people yeah Lewis makes a lot of bad decisions throughout the play um, so Pryor is left alone and begins to have visions of his ancestors and hear angelic voices that he can't understand basically a lot of weird magical stuff starts happening around him and he's trying to figure out what it means um, at the same time we meet Joe Pitt who is a Mormon law clerk uh, he is very deeply in the closet. Um, He's married to a woman named Harper, uh, who is sort of in the throes of some pretty serious depression and painkiller addiction, or I think just Vicodin addiction. Um, She's also agoraphobic, actually, in a tie to pushing daisies. So our first weird factual crossover. Um, Harper, in the middle of a drug fuel, of a drug-induced fantasy, um, meets a dreaming prior. They have this conversation about how they're both on what becomes known as the threshold of revelation, where they can kind of see each other in this astral realm they have a conversation with each other where in prior um it just kind of occurs to him and he accidentally says that joe is gay so harper finds that out it sort of confirms a suspicion that she has and when she confronts joe with it he moves out um he then winds up encountering lewis and the two of them begin an affair with one another oh i know um Joe's mentor uh, is the real live historical figure, Roy Cohn. Uh, He was um, Joseph McCarthy's aide and a lawyer and just kind of a total all-around scumbag. Um, Fun fact, he was also a real-life mentor to current President Donald Trump. So, you know. That that really just defines scumbag. Yeah, seriously. This play just won't stop being relevant. Yeah, right. Cohn himself, as he was in real life uh, in the play, is a closeted homosexual and is suffering secretly from AIDS. Um, He uses his position of power to make his doctor claim that it's liver cancer, but Mm -hmm. also get him on AZT, which at the time was an experimental drug that was really closed off access-wise. His nurse, Belize, uh, is also a close friend of Pryor and Lewis's. Uh, Belize is just kind of a source for good throughout the play and is just a really wonderful character in general. Um, So all of these characters start to kind of revolve around each other and all of their stories intertwine, and it culminates at the end of part one in the appearance of an actual honest-to-God angel who bursts through the ceiling of Pryor's apartment um, and declares him a prophet. 
Um, that's how part one ends. It's like, again, the coolest cliffhanger ever. Uh, it's the angel bursts in and says, greetings, traveler. The great work begins. The lights black out. And all you want to do is watch the next play. Yeah, I feel like I would have a hard time accepting that like I would have to wait until like a few months later to see season two. Yeah. Like I would I would want it to be like back to back full day of theater experience. Yeah, it's incredibly compulsive. Um, and then part two continues to sort of build those storylines. We also meet Joe's mother um, who comes to New York from Utah to convince him that he's not gay. Um, and the angel becomes a character. Um, her big demand, it turns out, um, is that she demands that Pryor, um, who is this prophet, find a way to prevent human progress from continuing because God has left and abandoned heaven and human progress is actively detrimental to heaven. And it's causing these earthquakes that are destroying it. And so the angel is pleading and trying to force Pryor to find a way to convince humanity to stop developing and moving forward. Um, obviously, that's a big thing to do, and it's something that isn't necessarily a good idea. Um, so the play becomes a really big metaphysical debate around those ideas, the nature of humanity, history, and progress. Um, but at the same time as all these huge ideas are being thrown around, it's a very keenly observed and really generous look at how all these people are moving through their own lives and the world and reckoning with um, where they are in it and what the state of the world is at the time that they're living. Um, it's really kind of lovely and wonderful. Um, so there are a lot of characters in the play. It utilizes a lot of double casting, um, but there are eight actors and they each have kind of a primary character who they play. Uh, so there's Pryor Walter. Um, he's a gay wasp who can trace his lineage back to the beginning of America. That's one of the reasons that his name is Pryor. Um, also a reluctant prophet. Um, there's Lewis, Pryor's partner, who can't handle the stress of caring for him. And Lewis has a difficult time facing the reality of situations in general. Um, there's Roy Cohn, again, just the worst, but a super fun, cool, good part to play. Um, nothing like a great villain. Um, Joe, uh, conflicted, does not begin to describe Joe in this play. Oh, uh, poor Joe. Yeah, oh, he has a rough time. Um, Harper, poor everybody, really. Oh, yeah, everybody has a tough time. Um, there's Harper, who's sort of an ethereal, funny, vulnerable, but also very surprisingly strong force throughout the play. Um, Belize, who is the caretaker for just about everyone in the play at one point or another. Belize is also a person of color, which becomes important because just about all the other characters are white. And Belize brings some very necessary, broader perspectives to the other characters, especially Lewis. They have a really amazing scene um, where Lewis is basically complaining and Belize comes back with a number of broader societal complaints and concerns that help broaden the lens of the play. Um, there's Hannah, Joe's mother. Um, she's a force to be reckoned with. Um, she's a very strong, committed Mormon, but she's also conflicted in her own way and becomes more and more of a full humanized figure as the play goes on. And there's the angel who's just trying to force everybody to take a time out for a while, guys. Um, also very upset about the fact that God disappeared after the San Francisco earthquake, um, which uh, is a whole point of conversation throughout the course of the play. Um, like I said, there's tons of other characters throughout, but those are sort of the core eight, and all of them get real moments of vulnerability and of progress and of joy. Um, themes and fun stuff. Uh, you can't stop forward motion is the big idea of this play. Um, societal change isn't reversible, and it's something that's necessary. It's how humans live. Um, 
Harper has a great line that it says uh, towards the end, in this world, there is a kind of painful progress. Um, the idea of societal shifts aren't simple and they aren't easy, but they need to happen. Uh, and Pryor finishes the play with actually a direct address to the audience saying, the world only spins forward. We will be citizens. The time has come by now. You are fabulous creatures, each and every one, and I bless you. More life, the great work begins. So it's a play that is also as much of a reflection as the 80s, it's a call to action play. And um, it was written at a time when gay marriage wasn't even a thing that anybody was really thinking about. And the idea of gay men and women being full citizens in America was a legitimate question, as was whether they would even all be alive. Um, oh, yeah. You know. So it's, uh, it's a play that is very much of its time, but very timeless at the same time. It also uh, has a lot in it about how the personal is political. Um, you can't float above uh, personal real struggles with political lenses. Your political beliefs have fallout and cause, um, have results on things. Um, Joe clerks for Roy Cohn, and that comes with its own set of problems and things that he has to deal with. Lewis can't hide from either the personal or political realities of the worlds that he's living in. Um, and the truth sort of always comes out. Uh, and if you try to ignore your own needs or the politics of a situation, real harm can be caused. Um, there's a lot of conversation of America as a melting pot and what that means. Um, this idea that it's a big country with all these different belief systems and behavioral structures and moral systems in conflict with one another is going to be chaotic and is going to be hard to overcome, but can ultimately result in something really beautiful. And then as a play, um, where Angels in America had some of its biggest impact was in the possibilities of theatrical storytelling. Uh, Kushner has a note at the beginning of the play that is one of my favorite pieces of theatrical writing ever. Um, at the end of the note, he says, the moments of magic are to be fully realized as bits of wonderful theatrical illusion, which means it's okay if the wires show, and maybe it's good that they do. Um, this is a play that has an angel burst through a ceiling. It has like a book appear and catch on fire, but all of those moments are written to be portrayed theatrically in ways that um, show the audience what's happening, but don't try to be something real. Don't try to fool the audience into thinking, oh my God, there's an angel that just appeared to me. Um, when I first This is saw, not like a magic show where they're, you're yeah. trying to wonder, how did they do that? Exactly. It's not about the sleight of hand. It's um, when the angel, the first time I saw the show uh, was in Live Arts in Charlottesville, Virginia, and the angel burst in and like she's wearing a harness and you can see this harness and it didn't make anything less grand about the moment. And it actually made it somewhat even more magical that it was a moment of collective storytelling. And that's the kind of thing that Angels in America really staked out. Um, it's not like it was the first play to ever do that kind of stuff. Thornton Wilder was doing that stuff way back in the early 1900s. Hashtag our town. Oh, yeah. Hashtag my feelings. And skin of our teeth and everything. But like, so there are plenty of plays that were doing this. Even Kushner, you know, was inspired by Brecht and all of this. But he was somebody who brought that kind of theatrical language really to the forefront of modern theater, especially in the 90s, and then tied it together with politics and with um the gay experience and all of that so uh it's a pretty cool play you guys you should yeah. check it out if it's ever played in your area um there's actually a production in london right now oh wow so, yeah i think it's coming back around for some reason i can't imagine why <laughs> Um, but we've got two very cool properties. Yeah. Um, where do these cross over thematically? Um, well, first off, just the idea of both of these being universes in which magical things occur. Yeah. But the characters are all very real. This is not 
I wouldn't describe either of these as like a hardcore fantasy no, story or like magical realism, which is such yeah. a loaded term these yeah. days. Yeah, it's more like they're slight. They're realities that are just like one step to the left or right. Right. Um, and again, this very heightened sense of production. Mm-hmm. without necessarily th- making the audience think that this is supposed to be the world you live in. Yeah, yeah, the attention to production design, the invitation for, like, yeah, for but imagination. A- yeah, and acknowledging that it's like, no, this is not for the real world. You cannot go find these places. Yeah. There, there are the strings, Pinocchio. Exactly. Um, but that doesn't take away from the magic and the awe and the, the whimsy and yeah. the, the wonder. And it's fun. It, yeah. They, I think they invite the audience to play games with them. Yeah. Um, in this, like, I think the theatricality of Angels in America does that, but even just the narration of Pushing Daisies does oh, that. Oh, totally. Where it's your, hey, we're going to tell you a story. Right. And, uh, oh. yeah, it's Which a is fun. fun. Mm-hmm. Um, and the sense that in, in, both sh- in both the TV show and the theatrical show, um, you cannot exclude yourself from the larger experience yeah like, yeah a need for personal connection yeah and investment yeah a need for like while having like intimate personal investment you also need to have broader investment in again like people you may not even know mm-hmm. um and for you know pushing daisies it's like we help solve murders but for angels in america it's you know we need to avoid the universal apocalypse of yeah. some kind yeah you know, basically um and yeah and i think that there's an element of needing to be honest with the people around you as yeah. well um so much of the damage that characters do to one another in angels in america is because they're not truthful with themselves yeah. or with each other and it's the same thing with uh pushing daisies the main relationship is all about like hiding secrets yeah and both from the rest front. of the world with the end and also ned just being a very guarded person mm-hmm. and you know chuck getting upset with him about that yeah and like every step forward that their relationship mm-hmm. takes it's because one of those walls comes down yeah and he's able to own up to it um do they ever get to the point of him letting letting chuck know that he killed her dad yes yeah. um and she is very upset about that I bet. yeah yeah I mean, even though i mean it's an accident yeah but he didn't it's, know it's still but, it's, I think but it's, it's still it i mean it affected her life in deep ways yeah. and given 20 years to percolate yeah uh, you know that only makes yeah. it worse oh totally um, so yeah, I think there are some thematic funds. I think also the forming of these uh, uh, ad hoc families. Yeah, you know? which I really enjoy in the yeah. show. Which is something that I think happens a lot in TV. Like, oh yeah, because you have these disparate characters. Yeah, but I think because of the size of Angels in America, there mm. really is the chance to get to know all of these characters and see them all come together. Like even Hannah, um, Joe's mom, is like, yeah. she pops up for a monologue at the end of that, part one, and she's kind of a joke character. Mm. And then over the course of act two, she becomes this intrinsic part of this group of people. And it's the, because yeah. you get to spend time with people. Um, yeah. And get to see them reacting and watch them work together. Yeah. And seeing characters who could be very easily throw away comic characters become real people. Yeah. Who you're rooting for. Absolutely. Um, how about the physical crossover of these worlds? Yes, that is a good question. <laughs> um, I I feel like it it seems weird to cross them over considering again, like pushing daisies are very magical, whimsical kind Doesn't of trippy seem world. Like an age crisis. No, kind of it's but <laughs> I, I feel like I could see them crossing over in the sense of, like, you know, there's some crime going on. Emerson Codd is pulled into mm-hmm. solving it, maybe even having to do with this god-angel crisis. Yeah. Not, yeah, and, like, they're... The they're worker pulled... at the Mormon Museum, like, yeah, <laughs> gets killed like, or something. Yeah, and they're <laughs> they're pulled in and, and end up finding out that maybe Ned's powers are connected to 
this larger disturbance in the universe. Yeah. Um, and I yeah, was thinking, that, so that, that's as far as I got. <laughs> I was thinking like, so in Angels in America, in part two, they go to heaven or, uh-huh. or yes. Lewis goes to heaven. He follows the angel and heaven looks like San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's this kind of like, it's sort of a joke in the play of how not abstract it is. Mm-hmm. It's like, there's a couple of people hanging out playing, playing games and like just talking and, um, and it's a very, um, physical place uh and so if this is a world where realities are oh. bendy and alternate um maybe they all go to the pie shop reality yeah <laughs> um, like maybe because, that's like an alternate reality that ends yeah. up being a litter like they're crossing over into another time dimension yeah exactly like maybe they are like you know at the end of the play they have more or less settled this crisis but um uh they've decided to kind of keep moving forward and maybe part of that moving forward is the exploration of these boundaries yeah and uh you know somewhere out there is this pie shop world then they maybe find their way in and because again there's this magical infusing of everything throughout um you've got ned's powers yeah prior's visions yeah maybe he like starts smelling pie all the time and he just it leads him oh yeah to it um basically i think they all just need a break they've really earned it you oh, know? totally. Yeah, that's true. I want them all just to hang out and eat pie. Yeah, I don't know that I need a murder mystery no, to wrap that this is up. True. I think I would be okay with this being a coffee shop AU. Totally. A pie yeah. shop AU. A pie shop AU. Yeah, which is um, a way better than a coffee shop Oh, AU. yeah. <laughs> I feel like the idea of prior finding the pie shop and being like, oh, my God, I kept smelling these amazing pies. This must be like real heaven. Mm-hmm. And Ned being like, what are you talking yeah, about? What? This is my real life. <laughs> this is what? No. This is actual life. <laughs> I feel like that reminds me of um, in the Tiffany Aching books, mm-hmm. the um, the Knack Mac Fecal, like they think that the real world where Tiffany lives is heaven. And when they die, they go back to the real world and they're like oh that one's not nearly as much fun (laughs) but then when we die in the real world we come back here so this one is way better absolutely you know so maybe maybe, yeah maybe that's 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 human heaven in the pie shop but then the people in pie shop world are like I know that but this is an yeah. actual word with problems. We have a lot of murders. Yeah, we got a lot of things going <laughs> yeah, on. Yeah, we have a lot of problems. Stuff is really intense, you guys. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think that like that's setting up just like everybody hanging out. Yeah. Is a good one, which leads to probably a softer battle dome than your average battle dome. Well, game. I don't know. We got uh, Roy Cohen here. Oh, that's true. I mean, oh God, I, does he get to come to the pie shop? Ugh. But I, I feel like that's why I was thinking originally some kind of murder mystery thing. Yeah. Um, because of I just really want Emerson Codd to shut him down true well i mean he so yeah so roy cohen at the end of angels america has died and yeah. he's god's lawyer for the absentee oh case. i forgot about that yeah. one yeah um and so he's already working on this dimensional plane so maybe he like follows them through yeah oh that's true yeah uh and so yeah that becomes he's causing some trouble in pie I have town to say i feel like that was a scene that seemed a little too nudgy for me in the play yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you some edits, Tony wow. Kushner. <laughs> I know Tony Kushner on blast. I know it just seemed more like, oh, we need to wrap up his story. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna add this, like almost yeah. like it would have been the last scene on the you know after the credits on the DVD mm-hmm. of like the Marvel expanded yeah, universe exactly. in America. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, I think the right production could pull it off. Yeah, <laughs> but. Anyway, he gets he comes into Pie Town and becomes a villain. Yes. Of course. Oh, totally. Yeah. And so they so yeah, I think Emerson Codd is on the case. Yeah. And they all have to get wrapped in to try to help. Yeah. Oh, and then I'll have pie at the end. Yeah, absolutely. And maybe maybe in that universe Roy Cohen learns to accept 
his identity as a gay man. Maybe. And he wants to settle down with someone and eat some pie. Yeah, he wants to sacrifice some power. Yeah. I don't know that I'm I'm ready to pair him with anybody and kiss your face. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah. I think He's, it would have to be some some new person that we invent for yeah. this particular fanfic. He's got fanfic. some work to do. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's got a lot of work to do. <laughs> um, but while we're talking about it, how about those kiss your faces? Um. So I feel like we have a lot of gay men in Angels in America mm-hmm. and a lot of women in the that's Pushing true. Daisies universe. You know, maybe in our classic either or, this might be an episode that's more best buddies than Kiss Your Faces. I think it might be. Yeah. Um, because, yeah, like I would actually really like to pair Olive up with somebody. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think anyone's anyone's riding yeah, her wave. Yeah, that's true. There's not really anybody who's yeah, like, explicitly name, homosexual. Yeah, like name me a straight man in Angels in America. <laughs> okay, yeah. No, that's fair. That's fair. And yeah, there's everybody in Pushing Daisies in the main cast is pretty established as straight. Um, um, yeah. And I mean, I feel like I could see Emerson and Olive being bi. Mm-hmm. But but even then again I'm like yeah. I don't Olive's obviously not getting with a gay guy yeah and I I don't know I feel it like I don't think any of the guys are right for Emerson yeah they're not gruff enough yeah mm-hmm. um so best buddies town yeah oh yeah it's, a Harper's friends with everybody especially Chuck oh yeah I feel like Harper and Chuck would have a lot to talk about mm-hmm. um, oh yeah There's they're a... in relationships with guys who are very closed off mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um. Yeah, they would get each other a little too well, maybe. Yeah, like sex is not actually a thing that either of them can have. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, wow. Yeah. And actually, didn't Mary Louise Parker play Harper? Yes, I believe and she I did. And I feel like she and Anna Friel look like twins. They do. I thought it was Mary Louise Parker yeah, for quite oh, a while. Me too. So I feel like they would get together and just be like, wow, this is an amazing mirror universe yeah, we have. I know. How crazy this is. Yeah, and like... I think they would be both people who, again, like want to see the world and Mm -hmm. experience things, but have grown up in this very limited environment. Um, And, you know, I think Vivian and Lily could certainly talk to Harper about being agoraphobic. I think that would certainly click. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, Harper's super good friends with the Chucks. Yeah. Um, Who's Ned hanging around with? I think like Ned and Joe would get each other. Oh, yeah. I think um, Ned and Pryor, too. Again, like having these weird yeah. powers having a, that like, they burn. don't that they don't want. Yeah. Yeah. I think Emerson. Emerson might be annoyed enough by Lewis to actually make it into a battle dome. <laughs> yeah, I could totally see that. I think Emerson would just not want any of his. Yeah. Um, not flakiness yeah like emotional flakiness and i think in doing so he and belize would probably become friends oh yeah and they would be like thank god that you're here because there are a bunch of white people around Uh and they are hot messes yeah and everything's like either whimsy or panic and i hate it um yeah how about olive um let's see olive um now i have to go back and look at the yeah i feel like she and she and hannah they're very they're they're both a little more practical yeah. Um, like they get things done, but I think Olive oh, well, could bring a, a, a whimsical side out of Hannah. Yeah. Um, and maybe Olive and Pryor, because Olive loves Ned and he doesn't love her back. Yeah. And the idea of be, like loving someone who is not loving you in the way you want to be loved. That is true. Yeah. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah. I think Lewis would take some time. He would have to eat a lot of pie and do a lot of work before anybody was really good friends with him. Yeah. Oh, poor Lewis. He, he'll be fine. I think he would be okay friends with everybody. And then, you know, maybe ultimately he and Ned would get along. Yeah. And I think, um, 
he and Enigat Pryor would end up being together. Yeah. Um, at Lewis and Pryor. Lewis and Pryor? Yeah, aren't they? No, they're friends at the end of the play. Yeah, but they, may, I mean, maybe they could be together in this pie universe. Maybe. There'd be a lot of pie to cover first. That is true. But, yeah. I mean, if it's going to happen, it's going to happen in the candy-coated Pushing Daisies world. Yeah. Um, you know. And, oh, and they're going to stop evil Roy Cohn, so. Yeah, right? They're going to take him down. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, yeah, I think, like, this crossover, like, again, I just want these people to be happy together. Yeah, I feel like they all deserve it. Yeah, there's a real sense at the end of Angels in America, and I think through Pushing Daisies, it does a great job establishing stakes in this feeling that, like, these people have been through a lot. Yeah. And they really deserve a break. Oh, definitely. And they're they're people who are ultimately good people. They've just been damaged in particular yeah. ways. Yeah, that makes them Maybe lash aside from out Roy at Cohen. people. Yeah, Roy Cohen is not a, not a guy who I think is all that redeemable. But, uh, yeah. Yeah, he's a good villain. Yeah, oh, totally. <laughs> um, so if people themselves want to take a well, little break. I mean, we oh. didn't do Battle Dome officially. Oh, we didn't. So, so Emer- I mean, Emerson and Roy. Yeah, Emerson and Roy takes him down. Um, I Maybe this isn't exactly a Battle Dome, but I kind of want Belize to, like, somehow outwit the coroner. Ooh. And I mean, he's a nurse, so he'd yeah. be like in the medical field. Absolutely. And yeah, I feel like I just want to see him like. And he's tricky. I mean, yeah, he, exactly. He takes like the at the end and gives right. it to Pryor. Yeah, like makes a you know kind of smart move with the mm-hmm. coroner, and the coroner's just kind of like, wait, what happened? Yeah, hold on a second. Yeah, yeah. No, that's like an intellectual battle. Don't yeah, it? exactly. Yeah. No, I like that. And maybe I feel like Lily Charles should fight someone. Maybe she fights Hannah. Ooh. Because Lily's um the the one I. The oh, woman yeah. with one eye, and she's kind of a tough broad. Yeah, I could see um, that. And she's been through a lot, so yeah. I feel like she would have some words. Yeah, and I think that would be a classic battle dome to best buddies kind of situation. Yeah, I think, I think they so. would they would gain respect. Yeah, for this is a very battle dome to best buddies mm-hmm. world. I think everything in this world winds up best buddies. Yes, because I like all these people. And so much. everyone's just again having pie. Yeah, exactly. Um, so any if people want to have their pie and then and read then something additional, have or, your pie, eat it too. And read a book about pie. Yeah, and then have a cool, have some cool stuff. Yeah. Where uh, should they go? So for works that have kind of that heightened production value slash magical whimsy um, with with an edge, mm-hmm. um, you could check out Big Fish, which is about a man who's losing his father, um, who's always been this larger-than-life figure. Mm-hmm. Um, so we get to see flashbacks into the father's life and these amazing stories he told that yeah. are not real in any way. Um, there's Amelie, a French movie about a loner girl who sees the world in a very magical way. Um, I feel like if Ned and Chuck had a baby, it would be Amelie. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Except, you know, Amelie grows up without adorable parents. Yeah, but, you know. Yeah. Um, Waitress for more sharp, funny dialogue and more pies. Always pies. Always pies. Um, Chocolat about a woman who opens up a chocolate shop in a very repressed French town during Lent. Featuring Johnny Depp without any weird makeup or hat choices yeah that's true yeah not not flailing around yeah um also uh what's his name who is dr octopus in the spider-man from merlina yeah he's delightful he really is um and judy dench lots of awesome people in that Mm -hmm. movie 
um, Kiki's delivery service about a young witch who moves to a new city and has to deal with meeting people and the near loss of her powers. Um, and I feel like that one is like the world knows that there are witches, but they're rare enough. Yeah. But no one's like freaked out by them exactly. Yeah. Like it's, it's like a very a special thing. Yeah, it's like again just left of reality. Mm. Also, there's a bakery, mm. so this is a very dessert heavy yeah. recommendation list. Um, there's the Sarah Addison Allen books, um, which deal with family and have that sense of magic in the background of everyday life. Mm-hmm. Um, there's The Boy Detective Fails by Joe oh. Mino, um, one of Walt's favorites. Yeah. About a it's going to for- be a crossover appeal episode. Oh, at totally. Some point. Um, it's about a former boy detective who has to confront the pains of adulthood. Um, I feel like he and Ned would have a lot to talk about. Amen. And. The series of unfortunate events, um, both the books and the TV series, about three orphans who have to unravel the mystery of their parents while escaping their evil guardian. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think the Netflix series actually has a very similar stylization. Yeah, it's got that really intense production value um, and, you know, narrator. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there are a lot of similarities in tone for totally. both of those. Um, and then for more murder mystery fun, um, Veronica Mars about a teen detective starring Kristen Bell. Um, also just really great snappy writing. And uh, Miss, Furter, Miss Fisher's Murder Mysteries about a flabber detective. Speaking of circus folk. Speaking of circus folk. Uh, mm-hmm. We talked about this more extensively in episode three. Mm-hmm. And um, so, yeah, what about Angels in America? Well, yeah. So Angels in America, first of all, real talk. Like I said, just about any play from the last 30 years or so is going to owe some amount of debt to Angels in America. Um, but uh, for some specific references, instead of just like, go see a play. Yeah, right. Um, for more Tony Kushner, um, I really like Caroline or Change, uh, which is a play with music. The music was written with uh, with by Jean, uh, Janine Tesori, who also wrote Fun Home and Violet. Oh, um, that's cool. Yeah, it's sort of a lightly autobiographical story set in the 1950s. Um, there's also his most recent play, The Intelligent Homosexual's Guide to Capitalism and Socialism with the Keys to the Scriptures. Um, so maybe some slight thematic overlap with Angels yeah, in just, America, you know. furthering conversation. Um, Kushner's a wonderful writer. He's super intellectual, but um, very relatable in his writing as well. Um, plays by Brecht, who inspired Kushner. Um, Bertolt Brecht was all about the idea of reminding the audience at all times that they were watching something fake, um, that they were not... His it's fascinating because in a lot of ways Brecht was a he was too good of a playwright for his own theories because his idea was that if the audience is fooled into watching a story or getting emotionally invested they won't be picking up on the ideas that you're portraying and the the thoughts and the debates and so he wrote these plays that have all of these isolationist techniques of like signs pop up at the beginning of scenes saying what's going to happen in scene in the scene before it happens or like music is really discordant and off-putting um but at the same time, he's writing these incredibly deep and complex and compelling characters. And so it's incredibly hard to read his but plays. You can't and not stop the get, feels. Yeah, you can't stop the feels. Um, uh, my favorite plays by him are Mother Courage and Her Children, uh, Galileo, which I think is one that is especially relevant these days. Um, thanks, Trump. Um, and the Caucasian Chalk Circle. Um, uh, for plays that have a sort of purposeful theatricality to them, um, there's the plays of Sarah Rule. Um, she is a playwright who gets most accused, I think, of writing in, quote, magical realism or whimsy, I think largely because she's a woman uh, mm-hmm. and writes very highly theatrical plays, but um, she writes really lovely stuff. Um, uh, my personal favorite of hers is In the Next Room or The Vibrator Play. Uh, Paula Vogel, a few years after Angels in America, wrote How I Learned to Drive, which is still, I think, one of the best plays of the last 50 years. Um, it has a similar uh, admitted theatricality to it. There's a lot of use of narration, a lot of fluid scene changes. Um, 
um, and it's just really brilliant and heartbreaking. And then for some writers, uh, some recent writers, there's Brendan Jacobs Jenkins, who is, I think, the playwright right now doing the most cutting-edge work in theater and, like, pushing the boundaries of what an audience can be put through uh, in a play um, in a good way, in an interesting way. Um, uh, he has, His play, An Octoroon, is one of my favorites of the last few years. And then there's also Robert O'Hara, whose play Booty Candy is about um, the black gay experience growing up, specifically his black gay experience. Um, and a lot of the play deals with the um, uh, the tokenization or the idea of not being able to not be seen as a black gay playwright mm-hmm. um, by everybody else in the theater. Um, it's also, is that the one that has the talkback? Yes, it has a talkback scene in it that's just delightfully the, painful. Well done, sir. Yeah. Um, for current plays with some political relevance, uh, Lynn Nottage has a play on Broadway called Sweat right now, which is about a small uh, factory town in Pennsylvania that is dying. And it is like whenever people say like, oh, we should sympathize more with Trump America. Um, it's what this play is doing. It's telling the story of a blue collar town, um, but doing so in a very fair, very honest and very heartfelt way that also doesn't pull any punches as to what the situations are currently. Um, and hey, why not check out Hamilton? There's another once in a generation show that people will talk about all the time. Um, it's really good, you guys. And it's another one that in its casting and presentational styles change the way that the form is operating. Yeah, um, it's like you're not yeah. supposed to be there thinking, this is definitely what George Washington said and looked like and did. Yeah. Like this is the founding fathers divorced from like deep historical connection, but bringing a very significant relevance Mm -hmm. to what the significance they had for us living now. Yeah. It is, dare I say, revolutionary. Hi-yo. Um But much like Angel in America, Hamilton is a play that is going to be getting talked about in 10, 20, 30 years. Mm-hmm. Someone will do a podcast about Hamilton 30 years from now. Someone did a podcast about Hamilton oh, yeah. But we'll do it again in 30 episode. years. Yeah. <laughs> um, If you feel like watching some TV, uh, HBO did an Angels in America miniseries about 10 years ago now. Uh, maybe about six or seven years ago, actually. Um, starring Al Pacino oh, as Roy Cohn, Emma Thompson. Yeah, the cast is great. Yeah. I know that much. Um, and it's a solid adaptation. It loses a little bit by being put into a film as opposed to a theater, a theatrical experience. But they do a lot of things right as well. Um, for a book, I would really recommend The Avengers of Cavalier and Clay by Michael Chabon. Um, it has a similar kind of framing of historical events around the gay experience. Um, it's about comic book writers in the 30s and 40s, um, one of whom is a homosexual. And also, um, the threat of yeah Jewish people as yeah, well. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I and mean, that's an area of Angels in America that I barely touched on at all in the podcast. Well, but there's a whole it, Judaism yeah. Yeah, idea. And, my, and I mean, religion Chabon. and Mormonism. It's, it's a big that is play. True. Yeah, and, uh, and Michael Chabon is, yeah. The Cavalier and Clay is very centered on the Jewish experience as well. Um, and then, hey, if you feel like being super current, watch American Gods on Stars, you guys. Also by Brian Fuller, yeah. who did Pushing Daisy. It's true. It all comes full circle. Yeah. Um, and starring, and not starring, but in it is Kristen Chenoweth. Yeah. She's playing Easter. Yeah. Um, it's based on the book by Neil Gaiman, which I also love, but the show only has three episodes so far, and it's already one of my favorite things on television. Um, it's a... Uh, as the book is, it's a meditation on the melting pot idea of America as it applies to religions. Um, the basic premise um, of the world of it is that every time that someone came to America who worshipped a god and worshipped their god on the shores of America, that god was born in America. And so now you have all of these gods running around this country 
looking for followers and trying to figure out um, who's going to be the authority. Um, and also you have this war of the sort of old gods brewing against newer gods for attention of things like media and the internet and stuff. Um, there's a character in the middle uh, who's sort of caught in the middle of this whole uh, war, who's the viewpoint character, and there's a lot of awesome stuff in the book. I'm super excited about the series. They're knocking it out of the park so far, so go check it out. Um, but first, you should go check out some other Crossover Appeal content at crossoverappealpodcast.tumblr.com. And if you have ideas about what kind of pie all these characters would be eating, yes, um, email us at crossoverappealpodcast at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. Maybe we'll do a thread on Twitter or somewhere about which kind of pie each character would order. Perhaps on our Facebook page. Oh, yeah. Crossover Appeal Podcast. Um, yeah, we do off-week media uh, catch-ups where people can talk about what they're watching or reading or being exposed to. And then, yeah, we're going to start doing a little fun threads and stuff, too, because it's oh, yeah. fun. Every so often we do that. Yeah, and we'll post pictures of pie, if nothing else. Oh, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Maybe I should make some pie this week. Yes, please. Um, but what about Twitter? Uh, you can tweet at us at Crossover Appeal, mm-hmm. and um, we have polls sometimes, which is really fun, mostly when we are debating about a particular topic. It's true. You can help me prove myself right or wrong, as the case may be, <laughs> and has been for the last few polls. No, um, you got... Um, I'm trying to remember. Well, who keeps track? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But most importantly, please, 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 if you haven't already, subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a rating and a review. Um, They're incredibly helpful to get the word out and get more people listening and sending us pictures of pie. Um, Yeah. Yeah. But for now, I think that's going to do it. Um, thank you for listening and hanging out with us. Thanks to Bodo for not being too emotionally distraught. Yeah, he was pretty emotionally distraught. This but is a rough he's, one, guys. he's handling it well now. Yeah, he had some opinions, but you know, we, we let him know that he can start his own podcast, frankly. That's true. Bodo smells everything. Look mm. for it on your podcast. <laughs> Coming soon. I kind of want to do that now. <laughs> Would it be us doing the Bodo voice? yes now yeah totally yeah so keep a keep an eye out for that folks yeah right (laughs) but in the meantime um keep an eye out for us two weeks from now uh on wednesday we'll see you for the next episode and uh, until then this has been crossover appeal i'm walt mcgoff and i'm annie cardi and we are reminding you to as always please ship responsibly 